Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. No, I'm special guest host Nick Underwood. You might remember me from special episodes such as Point Break is the Greatest Movie Ever. And on today's episode, we're discussing the Codex Serafinianus, a bizarre art piece that offers a glimpse into the intriguing mind of a masterful Italian artist and the insane journey that can take you on. Then special guest host not Brett Chisholm slash Nick Underwood slash Flip63Hold digs deep into a franchise that has cavitated its way through the Hollywood production machine and explores the question why. Why is content made through this unlikely lens? That's right, we're talking about Tremors. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Nick, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm doing pretty good, actually. Dude, it's great to see you, man. Thanks for uh, joining the show for a few weeks. Flip six three hole on the mic. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty cool to do this. I'm glad you guys gave me a chance. Uh, I wasn't so sure how how I rocked it out with the Point Break podcast, but I guess good enough to uh, come back for a couple more. Ah, oh, dude, that was an awesome show, and it was really cool hearing someone else do a content piece. Yeah, uh, so used to Brett and I doing it, and I know it's not like. It probably just seems like we're riffing, but Brett and I do a ton of outlining for everything. So it was interesting to see someone else do that because I know, you know, it, it takes a lot of work. So I appreciate uh, you putting a lot of work into this. Yeah. I mean, that's actually um, why we had to delay a little bit uh, for this first one, because I had a lot going on with uh, with my life and all the things we're kind of doing over here right now. And I just didn't have the time to really put in the, the work to do a full, full piece. So uh, yeah, no, I get it. It's, it's not just coming on here and and, and talking and, and making make yourself sound smart with words and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can really hide a lot with a good outline. I remember yeah. when we first came up with the idea for the show, I was like, man, how hard would it be to just go on and talk for a little while about content mm-hmm. that I love? But then when we started putting the show together in the beginning, I mean, we mentioned it before, like we probably recorded eight shows that we ended up scrapping because yeah. they were just kind of garbage. But we realized like, wow, this takes like a week to two weeks to put together a good content piece every single time. And so that for me has kind of become part of the fun because it's, it's made me think about content in a whole nother way where I actually have to be very analytical about what I'm watching. And I wasn't doing that before. I was just like, I've loved books and movies and everything, but I wasn't really picking this stuff apart and going deep into behind the scenes and the philosophy and everything. So yeah, the contentology being a real thing, it is a real thing now. It's, it's changed the way I look at everything that I, that I consume. No, I, I would agree. Um, digging into the piece today into the point break stuff. Um, yeah, just that you, you get a whole new perspective on, on the things you love. So it's pretty cool. Yes, indeed it is. So, uh, anything uh, anything new in your life? Like, what's uh, what's going on? We haven't caught up in a while. Yeah, I, there's actually a lot new. Um, and you know, I mentioned that we were talking about the work that goes into this. I actually took it a whole nother level. Uh, if you remember last episode, Brett mentioned you know he might have a special guest, and 
maybe a poll at the end after I'm done or the special guest <laughs> take is over done. his See, life. Yeah. And he said, you know, I'll get the, whoever, whoever's the best gets the airstream, the, the wife and the dog. Well, I didn't want to risk it. Um, not being so sure how I would do. So actually last week we bought an airstream in Southwest Colorado. <laughs> uh, nice. Moved in with my fiance and my dog. And I took a job again as a pilot. Granted, not for aeroplanes, but uh, drones. And and literally probably an hour to an hour and a half from where Brett lives in his Airstream with his wife and his dog. So Man. either way this goes, I uh, I got the life that he promised. Or you offered. are a total knockoff Brett now. That's amazing. That's a, that's a lot more work than we were expecting <laughs> out of you. So I do appreciate you changing everything about your life to be more like Brett. Yeah, I mean, when I go in, you know, I try to go all in. There's there's probably another way you could look at it, though. Um, are you familiar with the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley, starring one Matt Damon? Not a Yes, indeed. So it may be a stretch, but, you know, in the movie, uh, Matt kind of gets obsessed with uh, Jude Law's character and, and then gets into his life a little bit. And then I don't remember he kills Jude Law's character or the guy dies and Matt basically takes over his life. So maybe that's what I'm doing here. I don't know. Ooh, hopefully we cut it off just short of you murdering Brett. Right up to that yeah. point, it's very whimsical. You cross <laughs> that line, it gets a little creepy. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I only jest. Well, I guess I'm the only host of this show that does not live in an airstream now. So maybe I need to be making some changes. It sounds like that is uh, becoming a requirement for being on the content clearinghouse. It is a lifestyle. Do you remember, uh, I, I made a little upgrade myself uh, recently. Remember a few weeks ago I was talking about that one-wheel crash I had? Yeah, that was sounded pretty uh, pretty gnarly. Well, I, I went I went in and got the, uh, they're like the one-wheel training wheels Brett was talking about, and the fangs mm-hmm. that you put on the front. So yeah. now mine, it's not really a one-wheel, it's a three-wheel now. And I sometimes I look at them like, oh, man, this is mm. totally for beginners. But... I do have a feeling that they are going to save me again. I've already, I've already realized now, like I've become much more nose aware on the one wheel. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while I'll look down like, man, there are just like a quarter of an inch clearance from the ground. So now having those fangs, I feel like I can ride way more confidently and I feel way safer riding with my daughter Isla on there because now, you know, I'm not, I'm not so worried about, flying off of the board with her <laughs> yeah how a little gun shy now how does that work with uh with isla does she stand on it with you or do you just kind of hold her or how does that look yeah i stand with my feet wide like out towards the nose and tail and then she stands with her feet narrow like up against the uh yeah. up against the whatever the mud flat the whatever they call yeah. it oh. yeah and uh, i mean it works really well actually in some ways it rides better with her on it because we have a little bit more like weight to shift around as we're like going into corners and stuff. Mm-hmm. So riding with her is different than just riding by myself. And then also I ride and I push the stroller with our, uh, almost two year old. And that's like a whole nother vehicle. <laughs> it, that's almost like, it's like racing with a trailer, but the, but the trailer's out front. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I still regret not, um, t- uh, taking a shot on it yet. Um, I know we talked about it, uh, I think offline about, uh, somewhere I was a few weeks ago, they had like a bunch of uh, one-wheelers. It was like a really cool campground that had like 
like a total one wheel vibe and I was going to do it there and I can't remember if it was just timing or what, what happened, but I never ended up doing it one day. Oh man, we well, can't go full Brett until you get on a one wheel. That's true. That might be the last step in Mr. Yeah. Ripleying his <laughs> life. You gotta, yeah. you gotta ride the one wheel and you got everything else. Yeah. So maybe instead of murder, we do one wheel. <laughs> I'm sure that he'll appreciate that trade off when he listens to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, are you ready to get into the off top? Yeah, let's do it. I, you mentioned that you had something pretty cool this time, so let, let me have it. It's something I like about this show is it kind of gives me the permission to be fascinated by things. Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to just kind of go through life and even things that objectively are amazing, you're just like, ah, whatever, that's just the way the world is now. But every yeah. once in a while, I'll see like some crazy art piece or something that just totally blows my mind and it... it it's like I said, it like totally fascinates me. And uh, mm-hmm. I found this thing. It's just like a random video on YouTube. But have you ever heard of the Codex Seraphinianus? That actually does sound familiar, but um, uh, give me some more. I don't know. So the Codex Seraphinianus, it's this bizarre tome. It's this. It's like a rare 360-page art piece created by this Italian artist, Luigi Serafini. Mm-hmm. And he was also an accomplished architect and industrial designer, which definitely comes through in the, the codex that he created. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the codex, which was originally published in 1981, took him two years to create. And it's this bizarre and incomprehensible encyclopedia of an alien dimension or maybe another planet. But it's this, it's his book and it's written in an untranslatable language. It features Numerous sections on things like plants, animals, microscopic organisms, subatomic realms, machines, and then like the strange inhabitants of this fictionalized world. Yeah. And I got this from a YouTube video on the Curious Archive page, which I'll share in the show notes. And I encourage anyone who finds this interesting to check it out because this video, it's it's kind of like what I'm going to do here with the podcast, but it also features pictures. So <laughs> part of this is uh, you definitely want to see this artwork. Like you, you got to see it to truly understand the bizarre nature of this thing. Okay. So this book, it features these brightly illustrated, they're they're almost like welcoming imagery of a strange place where things like trees will uproot themselves and move around in a sentient manner and rainbows seem to populate and possibly power this world. And they're laid down by this strange Leonardo da Vinci style helicopter device. And there are whole sections about these creatures that have it's so weird. They have like human or animal legs, but then their upper bodies are things like birds' nests and beehives, mushrooms and vegetables. It's very strange and almost adorable in its alien-like whimsy. Yeah, no, I uh, I think I've, I definitely have heard of this. Uh, it sounds really cool. Yeah, if you've seen the artwork, you would definitely recognize it. It's It's got a very distinctive style. Luigi Serafini's art is, I mean, it's like... Uh, it's almost like cartoony, but there's stuff in it that is also very realistic and bizarre. Like I found one um, one cover that was it was like a, f- a five panel, kind of like a like a, a cartoon of the inhabitants of the world making love missionary mm-hmm. style. But then hmm. each panel, their bodies are morphing into. At the end, you see they're morphing into an alligator. It's so strange. And everything seems, it's all completely out of context. 
And uh, the video that I watched stated the idea of the entire art project was to simulate the feeling of a small child paging through an illustrated encyclopedia, like looking at the pictures and marveling at the text that we call human language. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, that really is a crazy experience. You know, children have to be so fascinated slash confused at all times. And that feeling is almost impossible to capture as an adult because we already understand so much about the world that we live in. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that I think that's a really cool idea for, you know, a starting point for an art piece to make an adult feel confused and intrigued like a child and all the writing in the codex, it seems to be based on Western style writing with left to right layout, upper and lower case paragraph breaks. And Serafini said that the writing doesn't mean anything. And he attested the writing to almost being like automatic writing where he just kind of zoned out and like, Oh, there's some alien text. And, uh, the, all of that is, you know, it's been, people have tried to, uh, translate it over and over. And yeah, continuously failed but the numbering system for the pages was eventually decoded by these two guys um alan c weschler and a bulgarian linguist ivan darzhansky so there is some basis for what he was doing in uh in modern languages but going back to the encyclopedia thing serafini said that he wanted reading it to feel like a child looking at a book and being completely confused by it but understanding that the weird letter forms on the page mean something to adults and I will attest okay. that the few pages I've seen capture that feeling incredibly well. Where, um, where, so this is just one single manuscript that this, or, or book that this guy just did by hand. And it's, uh, where, where does it live in the world today? Like, well, you can purchase it on Amazon. I mean, okay. I, it, it's probably hard to find a copy of it. Like everything I saw, it's like, you know, $150 all the way okay. up to like $500. It's very rare, but probably mm -hmm. the best place to see it would be things like the video that I'll share, you know, has a, has a, a lot of examples of the pages. And then if you, if you Google uh, the codex Seraphini on you'll just see tons of artwork, but this man, this book or, or watching this video, it reminds me of like these two things that I owned as I was, when I was a child. In fact, mm -hmm. I still have these two things because they were such significant, uh, artifacts that I was like, oh man, can never get rid of something like this. And the first one is a book called Dinotopia by James Gurney. Have you ever heard of that? That's digging way back there. I mean, um, if it's dinosaur related, it's a good chance I had something like that when I was a kid. I was a huge dinosaur buff, but uh, I don't know. It's uh, Dinotopia. It, it, it seems like it's a children's book about people being stranded on this strange island where dinosaurs still exist. And the dinosaurs are accepted as members of the society, and the book illustrates all the all the things that takes take place there, like diagrams of how dino, dinosaur based machinery worked and how society and commerce oh. work in a world with thunder lizards walking around. It's very cool. It's very well illustrated and thought out. And again, like that's an amazing art piece that I've had for probably thirty years now. Wow. Is that something? Uh, do you remember ever running into that book? It was pretty popular when I was a kid, I feel like. No, I feel like, I mean, as you described it, I, that's something I probably would remember. Um, but yeah, it would have definitely been something up my alley. Somehow I missed that one, I think. And the other thing, are you an Aliens fan? I mean, of course you the, are, right? The, the series, the movies? Yeah. Oh, Specifically uh, the second one, Aliens? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I have this. I'll hold it up for you. This is the Aliens Colonial Marines Technical Manual. What? I remember I found this at like Goodwill or something when I was a kid. But this book, there's probably only a couple hundred copies of this. I can't, I've never heard of anyone else having it. I've never seen another copy of it anywhere. And uh, it's it's basically like the handbook for being a colonial Marine. And then it goes through like their weaponry, their gear. And then at the, uh, you know, goes to like their spaceships and everything. And then at the back, it is an entire section on essentially like the the changes in their doctrine that happened after the movie aliens, like after the colonial Marines have encountered the aliens and it just goes deep until expanding the lore, which if you're into aliens, you'd find that extremely fascinating also. Yeah. So those two things, Dinotopia and the colonial Marines technical manual, those are things that kind of reminded me of this codex and things that I've held on for years. Cause it's just, mm-hmm. they just seem like such strange, rare book items. And for a contentologist like myself, which I, you know, that's a real thing. It is it's, a real uh, thing. It's awesome to find stuff like that. Yeah, that's really cool. That looked uh, uh, so for the listeners. Josh showed me the book. It's uh, it looked pretty substantial. The uh, the the manual. Uh, and that's just a some fan fiction that I guess somebody put together and just just kind of went with it. I I don't know. I mean, I I always got or, the feeling it was like official. Uh, is it merchandise? Yeah, okay. but. It's like I said, like, I don't really know much about it other than the fact that I own one, but all of that is like, <laughs> you know, reminds me of this codex, codex Seraphinianus and the codex is definitely a glimpse into the mind of this monumentally talented artist, Luigi mm-hmm. Serafini. It's very cool to see such unbound creativity put on the page. And I'm a, a little bit of an artist myself, nothing like Luigi Serafini, but I can attest that the same thing that makes me creative also makes me very neurotic. And I don't know exactly what normal is. I imagine that baseline is kind of a, a sliding scale for everyone, but yeah, I never really felt like my brain is normal, but it's mm-hmm. interesting to see the codex because it's, it's like a direct window into the strange mind of a highly skilled artist. And it's fascinating on those grounds alone. Uh, so like I said, if you do, happen to anyone out there ever happens to encounter a copy of this, you should write in and tell us about it. Cause I would love to see what this thing looks like in real life. Um, but for everyone else, check the show notes, this video by curious archive, will give you a great breakdown on it. And if you like creative content, this will be right up your alley. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really cool. I, uh, I will start scouring the bookshelves of all these little towns we land in looking for this, you know, random copy here or there. That might be the best place to find one, actually. Although it'll probably be like behind glass, and it'd be like their prized item in this little bookshop. And oh yeah, five thousand bucks for the old codex. So if you're gonna do that, just buy it off Amazon. Yeah, that's fair. So what's on your content circuit? You've been oh, doing man. anything besides just getting stealing Brett's life? No, it's uh, that has been all-consuming. I'll have to say. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty light lately. Um, I do have my sort of weekly podcast that I always catch up on. Uh, one being the content clearinghouse. Uh, the other, uh, I know I've talked to you about is the Lex Friedman podcast. Uh, he's actually putting out a couple a week now. He's, uh, he's really burning through those interviews. Um, I always enjoy those. And there's a couple that I always listen to. Um, other than that, it's really, um, I watched seven movies 
Um, but I can't talk about them just yet. <laughs> oh, are you going for like a Josh Evans style overachiever content piece tonight? You cover like, well, um, hours and hours of content. I don't, I don't think it's going that far. Uh, once we get to it, you might, you might, um, dial that back a little bit, that thought, but, uh, oh, yeah, it's, all right. it's, 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 uh, it's something. Well, I can't wait to hear something. Man, I've been, um, I kind of feel like lately with my content consumption, I talked to Brett about this. I told him that I almost feel like I'm doing like charity work content consumption because none of it can really apply to this show right now because I'm, so a few weeks ago I did the Walking Dead episode and then That reminded me how much I like The Walking Dead, so I started rewatching the entire series. I think I might have mentioned it on here, but we're mm-hmm. uh, watching it with my wife Melissa, and we're up to season seven in like three weeks. We've just been like mainlining it. Wow! And then also uh, another thing I've talked about in here: the Lost Fleet. There hasn't been a new Lost Fleet book, and I mean, it was probably eight years ago when I discovered that series and there hasn't been a new book since then, but they just, uh, just came out with Jack Campbell, just put out the 19th book boundless, which picks up at the end of like the entire saga. And so it was, it's really interesting to be reading one of those books in real time. Oh yeah. Cause up until this point, everything that I've read has been, you know, from years in the past mm-hmm. and I could consume the entire series, but it's, it, it definitely seems like he's setting up like another, three to six book arc with this. So I'm pretty excited about that, but not that, uh, it's charity work, content consumption. I've already talked about both of those things on here. <laughs> yeah. You're doing it. You're doing it for him because he doesn't have enough readers. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing Jack Campbell a solid yeah. by consuming I, his new book. I actually, um, I did, uh, I did listen to, I don't know how many, how many of in, in like the first main series at, at your suggestion or recommendation that I, I went through a, a good, I don't know, seven or eight of those books. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was uh, just out running and jogging and walking around in nature. It just kind of gave me a place to zone out and live in a world of space battles for a while. Oh man. Good. Fourth dimensional space battles. So awesome. So you finished like the main, the first main storyline. Yeah, I think that's how, cause I, I believe I, I had to take a break because I was really going through them. And I want to say, like, yeah, I stopped in, like, some kind of natural stopping point um, in between series or something like that. Yeah, there's – I think it's, like, six books, and then there's a four-book arc, and then a couple of other three- or four-book series. So, yeah, I mean, that's – if you if you listen to the first one, you got a pretty good chunk of the story, which yeah. you know I love it. I've read it three times now. Captain Jack Black Geary. Exactly. He's the man. All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into this mythical content that I've been hearing so much about. Ooh, content. What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast 
on Instagram and Facebook, and find the Don't Assume podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume podcast is streaming now. Yeah, you know what assuming makes out of you and me. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. So I know for a, a newer contentologist, it might mm. seem like you're being thrown in the deep end to do the content piece on your very first episode. I guess this is your second episode, and on both of them, we had you do the content piece. So we are throwing you into the deep end, and mm -hmm. let's hear it. Okay. So being a con uh, credentialed contentologist and a devout follower of the House of Content Clearing, I am fully aware of the power <laughs> of starting a content piece with a question. For the content piece today, I'm going to explore explore one of the most elementary yet powerful questions there is, uh, and that question is why. Uh, it's my favorite question in just about all contexts, but the context for our purposes here today are why content? Why do we humans make content? Uh, it's the kind of question that doesn't have an obvious or maybe even a right answer. Uh, it's the kind of question that probably can only be answered with opinions. There's probably really no facts behind this question. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of questions like, why are we here? Uh, why is there even a universe in the first place? Why are cats afraid of cucumbers? Uh, things like that. <laughs> Dogs hate pickles. I know that. Yeah. So, Any dog uh, I've ever had. I, I've never tried to give a pickle to a dog. I to try that after the podcast. Hmm. That was weird. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> there, there are many ways one could approach uh, this question. But for me, I thought the, uh, the best way to grapple with it is uh, through the lens of a particular franchise. And, you know, we contentologists love our franchises. Indeed. So if you Google uh, longest running franchises, uh, you can find several lists. And even though they all list particular franchises that aren't nearly as old as this one, uh, perhaps not unsurprisingly, this franchise never appears on any of those lists. Um, what I'm going to do is I'll list a few facts about this franchise before Ooh, I like telling you exactly what it is. And you jump in if you think you know which one I'm talking about. You have been listening to this show, haven't <laughs> you? Yeah, maybe about 65 times, I think. All right. It all began in 1990 with a single movie. Uh, to this day, this franchise has seven total movies, one 13-episode TV series, two failed TV series, two browser-based games, and a failed full video game. The latest movie was released last year, giving the franchise a 30-year run. Uh, the first movie happens to be my third favorite movie of all time, following Starship Troopers and Point Break, both of oh, which have man. already been covered on the podcast. I know I've mentioned it. The first movie was also directed by Ron Underwood with a budget of $10 million and brought in 16.7 at the box office. Yeah, ringing any bells? Still not there? Okay. No, I'm having a hard time. I'm trying to blank on a franchise this old that has TV and failed TV series and video games. There may, be a, good, may be a good reason uh, for that. We'll get to that. Okay. That you don't know about these shows. Uh, now let's talk about some of the actors involved in the franchise. Maybe that'll help. So right. Michael, Michael Gross, uh, the father from Family Ties, has appeared in every single movie and the TV series. Dean Norris of Breaking Bad fame starred in the TV series with his first major role. 
Reba McIntyre, the country singer, made her film debut in the first movie. Movies five and six co-star Malibu's Most Wanted, Jamie Kennedy. And we'll just cut to the chase, and this one really should clue you in. In the first movie, Kevin Bacon stars beside Fred Ward to save the small town of Perfection, Nevada from underground monsters called Graboids. Tremors? Yes. There's a you know, TV series or three about this? Yeah, well, there were, there's one full TV series that came out on sci-fi, and there were two in the works that didn't make it past, uh, I don't know, the cutting room floor or whatever you want to call it. You know, um, Knowing what I know about you, this is, is not surprising me, actually, that Tremors is in your top three. That seems very on brand. The, yeah, it's... Um, it's something about the movie. It uh, it just it's one of those you can watch over and over again. It's always on TV. Uh, it feels just like a even though it's a, it's a monster flick or whatever you want to call it. It's it's a real feel good kind of movie. Uh, oddly, it's uh, and randomly I uh, so you know my fiance Heather. Uh, we've been together eight years now, and it's turned into a Christmas tra- tradition with her family to watch <laughs> Tremors. Nice. Just because I don't know, like in the second year, I turned it on while we were all sitting somewhere and. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. I haven't seen Tremors in a long time, so I'm interested to hear your educated take on it. I mean, it's probably yeah. been – I've never seen anything else from the entire franchise other than yeah. the first one, and it's probably been 15 years. But thinking about Heather's tradition, I would be remiss to not mention uh, the tradition that my wife Melissa and I had. It lasted for two years. We couldn't quite make it to the third year. But uh, we did our Valentine's tradition for the first two years that we were together was watching Human Centipede 1 and Human Centipede 2. And when we got to the third year, we're like, this cannot continue. This must end right now. Well, I'll say if a relationship can be founded on or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) continue on something like that, there's I don't think there's anything that could break that relationship. Unlike it's or like the human centipede, I should say. Yes. Our centipede or our our relationship is <laughs> it is solid like the oh, ass to mouth sewing jobs featured in those movies. That is the perfect analogy for our relationship. <laughs> oh, I would I would love to see what Melissa thinks about that analogy. <laughs> well, she doesn't listen to the show. Oh good. <laughs> okay. So you you might be wondering, and it sounds like you are with all the choices out there, why did I choose trimmers as the lens? Because it's awesome. For, for this deep question. Yeah, well, so all right, I have two reasons. One is because it's awesome and I wanted to talk about it. And the other one is probably for more than any other franchise out there, um, why are they still making this content is actually a very legitimate question. Um you might have noticed as I was working through my clues, most of them were about the first movie. Um, Imagine that's probably the touchstone for all of this, right? The first movie, and then it's a it's a sliding scale of uh, quality the further on you go. Yeah, but I would say probably um, there's a huge jump between one and two, and then it kind of slides a little slower. Um, but yes, you are correct. Uh, kind of like the Starship one, Troopers franchise. Yeah, actually, not unlike the Starship Troopers franchise, the uh, yeah the follow ups to that were not. Um, let's just say they didn't make it into my top five. Yeah, not um, CCH quality. No, definitely not. I tried. It's it's not to say I didn't try. I will say Trimmers, the Trimmers movies and TV show. Um, you know, I I've watched them all before. I rewatched them for this, and 
the the first time going through some of the sequels, you know, there were points where like, okay, this is, well, yeah, this is not great, but I'll keep watching it. Watching it all the second time, I don't know if I had a different uh, perspective on it, or I, just because I knew what they were like, or um, maybe because I kind of watched them so, somewhat in the background the last time this this time around. They weren't as bad as I, I thought I remembered them to be. Um, they were definitely very watchable. They, 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 they stuck to the same tone that Tremors 1 had. Um, it's just more of a continuation of that with a few little twists and turns here and there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, the way I wanted to approach trying to answer the why question, why content, why make content, why make Tremors, and why keep making Tremors, uh, was to look at it from a few different angles. Um I'll tell you what the angles are here, and then we'll kind of go through them. Uh, first up, I want to just talk about why was the first Tremors movie made in the first place. Uh, and then we'll ask, uh, why did a guy best known as the lovable father from the popular 1980s sitcom Family Ties essentially spend the rest of his life starring in campy B-rate monster <laughs> movies with only a handful of other CMGEs otherwise, also known as cameo Michael Gross events, uh, to borrow from Brett's lexicon? <laughs> the answer is probably the paycheck. Well, you might be surprised. And then finally... <laughs> happy to be surprised. <laughs> yeah. And finally, uh, why would Universal Pictures, uh, home of such blockbuster franchises as Jurassic Park and Fast and the Furious, which, by the way, Fast and the Furious has grossed over a billion dollars. I don't know if you knew that. It's embarrassing. Uh, why would they keep financing these Tremors movies after 30 years if they got all these other things going on? So The paycheck. Look at those. Yeah. That one, you're probably right on. <laughs> So before I guess we really dig into those, um, there may be some people out there who haven't seen Tremors, and probably every single person listening hasn't seen the six follow-ups and the TV series. So I'll give a little recap of the original movie and then a really brief recap of the other ones um, so that we don't spend all day here. Um, Let's see. So... The original drew from a variety of genres. Uh, it was released in 19, when it was released in 1990. The marketing team actually had no idea how to sell it. You know, was it a horror, action, comedy? Was it a western? Was it a monster movie? Um, a genre they, blender. It, That's like one of the hallmarks of great content, in my opinion. No, I agree. Uh, however, for the marketing team, it was a real struggle, and they didn't really know how to put it out there, and so fans um, didn't really know what to expect, and they really didn't show up at the theaters. Um, they did okay. I think they. I saw that it opened fifth. Um, the weekend it came out behind, uh, I think it was like behind uh, Tango and Cash and uh, War of the Roses. And there was a bunch of other well-known movies that kind of beat it the, that weekend. But yeah, like you're saying, really, it was an uh, amalgamation of all of these genres. Um, the way I like to describe it is a family-friendly, fun-loving, silly monster action horror flick. Uh, it's lighthearted, yet exciting and suspenseful and well-written with great relatable characters that you actually root for uh, throughout this show. Um it's set in the small town of Perfection in the desert of Nevada. Uh, the town gets cut off from the rest of the world just long enough for this uh, monster romp to kind of play out. Uh, in this town, there's only a handful of residents, uh, about half of which get eaten by these bus-sized underground worms. you got to uh, have some victims in a good monster movie. Oh, absolutely. That It wouldn't be a monster movie without it. And these worms, they actually hunt their prey by sensing vibrations in the ground. So they're blind, and they can't smell, but they can feel you walking around. Um, and they actually have three small worms with their own mouths and teeth as tongues that reach out and grab the victims to pull them into the mouth of the big worm. Hence the name they go by, uh, Graboids. Uh, and uh, then the movie... Yeah. But before you go on, you might be touching on this later, but do they ever get into how the Graboids are able to move through the ground? 
They do. Um, it's explored in a variety or in, uh, different points in the different series or the different movies. Um, the first movie they just talk about, so they have these little like spikes on them on their outside of their carapace that they use like, uh, uh, what do they call them on worms? Uh, they basically model how worms do it. It's like little hairs in the worms, but on the, on the grab boys are little spikes and they just kind of slowly push their way through the dirt. Uh, later they talk about the fact since that's still quite unrealistic that they have some kind of, uh, uh, there was a particular acid supposedly that they can push out of their mouth that dis- dissolves the dirt in front of them. And apparently they can uh, do this at a clip of about, uh, I think it was like eight or nine miles an hour. Um, well, at least in the early movies. In the later movies, it looked like they were running um, like car speed. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how they explain that in the, in the movies. I had um, the thought of like a, uh, it either came from Tremors or from Dune, how they have the sandworms. And mm-hmm. I had the thought of like an underground animal or a vehicle being able to move by like cavitating the ground in front of it like if you could send out some sort of i'm not a scientologist or anything but uh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm not sure how cavitation works but <laughs> it seems like if you send out some sort of like sound wave pulse or something mm-hmm. that caused like the ground to bubble like have you ever seen those science experiments where they they blast air into like uh it's like a sand pit and the, the sand pit starts boiling and then when yeah, you're walking yeah. on it, you sink into it like it's water. I had the yeah. thought like watching a video like that, like, oh, you could you could actually move through sand, you know, like lightly packed dirt particulate with some sort of cavitation machine like that. And uh, I'm surprised that it's that that's not like part of the the lore. I guess maybe that technology came along later or something. Yeah, that's actually kind of interesting. Uh, I do know where the idea came from. So one of the writers, uh, a guy named Stephen Wilson, uh, was I believe he was in the army, but like I think doing some kind of video production for the army, and he was out in the Mojave Desert. And one day he was sitting on a rock, and he, he literally had the thought, um, what if I couldn't get off this rock because there was some kind of like sandworm land shark thing under here? And, and The floor uh, he, is graboids. He, yeah, and he, put a, he, put a, he actually wrote a note, put it in his pocket, and then as we'll see later... Um, that's where kind of trimmer well, that's exactly where trimmers, uh, the original idea came from. That's such an um, awesome seed idea too. Cause I think every yeah. kid has played that game I and mean, it really is like a variation mm-hmm. of the floor is lava. Yeah. And if you're like, especially if you're a boy and you're like, well, if it can be lava, it can also be monsters. And right. that totally seems like probably something that I would have done. when I was a kid, you know, it seems it's just like the, the type of game that anyone with, that kind of childlike whimsy would come up with. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. Now that, now that you're talking about it, I mean, think about it. We have things that can eat us monsters and every other kind of part of it. We can have things come from the sky. We have things in the water. We have things on top of land, but I mean, you tell me, but thank God we don't literally have things that come out of the ground. And eat us. I mean, yeah, there's small things like snakes and stuff, but something that can actually travel through the ground. Uh, this would be a whole different world. I think I don't think I'd want to live in that one. That would change our entire infrastructure system. You probably have to have like nuclear hardened foundations and everything, graboid hardened foundations, <laughs> if that was something that existed in our life. And you probably right. have to build everything down, you know, 30 meters down or something to prevent them from coming up into the city. Right. Yep. It's oh, man. Big old walls underground. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, all right. So in the, in the first movie, um, uh, it, it essentially follows uh, this guy named Val McKee and Earl Bassett. Val's played by uh, 
Kevin Bacon, or else played by Fred Ward. Uh, there are a couple of nobody uh, handymen, and they team up with the remaining denizens of perfection to kill these unrealistically capable diggers. Um, there are four of, them, four of the monsters in the in the in the movie, uh, four of these graboids, and they are picked off one by one in various fashions by the uh, uh, the ragtag crew composed of the handymen buddies, a husband and wife prepper duo, a retired single mom and her two children, one of which is a really annoying teenager. A visiting geologist, grad student slash love interest for Val, and a random other guy named Miguel. Um, they kill the first graboid by running away from it, and it, uh, like you're saying, um, they jumped over a concrete canal, and his crazy speed that he ran into the concrete wall, he basically blew himself up, uh, and that's how they killed the first one. Eight miles uh, an hour, huh? Yeah, yeah. You couldn't handle no. that impact. Well, the graboid physics is a really weird thing. Um, it's not a lot, not a lot known about it really. Um, the second one actually breaks through a basement wall of the local preppers, Bert and Heather Gummer, uh, which unfortunately for it, uh, was also happened to be an armory, uh, where it is consequently shot to death with an outlandish assortment of guns. That's the uh, scene I remember. That's, that's the scene that's burned into my psyche from tremors. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's one of a kind. I mean, I, I can't think of any other scene in any other movie that's anything like that. The effects um, are so awesome too. Yeah. I mean, they weren't bad for, you know, the time and what they had going or, and the budget they had. Um, the third graboid's killed by being tricked into swallowing a pipe bomb. And the fourth one is scared off of a cliff wall um, where it falls to its orange gooey death below. Um, and that's, that's, that's the general plot. Uh, obviously I left out a lot of the nuance that makes it so watchable. Um, it has a lot of good iconic scenes, um, kind of like the one we just talked about. And some quotable lines. And it's really just one of those movies you have to watch to appreciate. Um, describing Tremors is not going to convince you that this is a great movie. Well, um, that's your job here. So better tighten it up. I'm okay, already sold. Okay. I love I love it. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's that's just the first movie. Um, it didn't. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it didn't do great in the box office, like I mentioned. Um, but everybody, everybody who was involved with making it from the, the writers, the director, even the the production company, they all thought they had a pretty good movie on their hands. And again, you know, they kind of attributed it to the fact that they just didn't know how to market it. They didn't do so well originally, but it came out right during the uh, VHS boom. So right when people were really starting to buy movies and take them home. And that's when it kind of over time uh, picked up its cult following. I mean, that's how I found it. I'm fairly certain I wouldn't have seen this in the movie theater. I would have been 10. Yeah. So I, I think I just probably started seeing it on the reruns and they're like, holy crap, this is, this is going to be in my top three now. That's the perfect um, recipe for a cult movie too. Like something that yeah. is good is not marketed properly. And then you have a home video option. I mean, that's right. That's how you get a cult classic right there. Yep. And we will see that they definitely capitalized on that, uh, home video market for the, the next six movies in the TV series. So yeah, like I said, I'm not going to really dig in much into the, the remaining ones. I just, uh, gave myself a challenge. I want to see if I could make a one sentence description of each of the following. So, up after uh, up next after Tremors came Tremors 2 Aftershocks. It was released direct to video in 1996, six years later. Um, in this one, Kevin Bacon says, no, thank you. And Burt Gummer with <laughs> Earl and his new sidekick head down to Mexico to save an oil refinery from a graboid infestation, wherein they also learn about the second stage of graboid's life cycle, which is where three small terrestrial heat-seeking monsters called Shriekers burst out of the belly of the worm, killing it in the process. Classic Tremors. monster movie evolution. Yes. 
Tremors 3, Back to Perfection, released direct-to-video also uh, five years later in 2001. Uh, this time, Fred Ward says no thank you, but Michael Gross returns home yet again as Burt Gummer to fight off the third stage of Graboid evolution, wherein the shrieker, Shriekers turn into creatures that explode a mixture of gases out of their butts, a.k.a. <laughs> ass blasters. That's what they were called, ass blasters, which it's they use term. to launch into the air and then glide down onto their prey. Of so course they, come, they do. Come out of the ground, hang out on the ground, and then they use a gaseous mixture to launch like a rocket out of their butts to fly up in the air and kill people. That was bad to that second sentence. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up came uh, Tremors, the TV series. It aired uh, very confusingly to people out of order of which it was shot <laughs> What on sci-fi in 2003, just two years later. Trying to pulp fiction thing. No. So it was more that they weren't ready with one particular episode because of some effect or something. And the studio was like, whatever, just play them in this order. Like nobody's going to watch this anyways. Just do it. Yeah, just put it out there. Pretty much how it happened. And it was uh, <laughs> totally in- incongruous uh, like plot. It was, uh, uh, I saw them in the correct order the first time, so I didn't notice that. I just I learned about that in my research. Was, uh, the, was the show any good? Uh, I would say it's probably the low point of the whole thing, the whole Ooh. franchise. All right. Yeah, they had um, some big ideas for it. Um, obviously, they had to get a little more creative to, to, to stretch it across several episodes, and so they brought in some different kinds of creatures, and they introduced this thing called uh, – well, here, this is a, I'll give you my one sentence and maybe we'll go a little bit further. Uh, Gross again leads an ensemble cast to fight Graboids, plus a variety of other nasty, nasty creatures that are created by a secret government DNA-based chemical that gets loose called Mixmaster. So that was sort of their their, their plot element to, uh, to, to expand it to other kinds of monsters and weird things. Um, and they actually did have some other episodes they didn't shoot that involved like Bigfoot, and they were going to go all monster crazy with it. Oh, man. Um, but the... the uh, they had a very small budget. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was. I mean, it's very apparent in the in the, um, in the, the show itself. Uh, and by just, the fact that they had one episode they couldn't even shoot. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that was definitely the low point. Um, the fourth movie kind of took a different turn. Um, it's called Tremors War: The Legend Begins. Uh, also direct to video. I can. I'll just tell you right now that every single one has been direct to video. Um, since the first one, this one came out in 2004. It's set 100 years in the past, uh, where we see Michael Gross play a distant relevant relative of Burt Gummer in the Wild West as they fight off graboids in a Western mining town called Rejection. That's pretty uh, awesome. That's that one actually cool was concept. That one actually was pretty good. Um, that one I paid the most attention to the last week, and um, it was it really wasn't a bad movie. If you know for what it is, right? Um, Tremors Five Bloodlines came out next. That came out 11 years later. So between Tremors 4 and 5, uh, it was an 11-year break. That was in 2015. Um, Burt Gummer finds out he has a son who happens to be played by Jamie Kennedy, a very ragged-looking Jamie, Jamie Kennedy. Oh. Um, and they fight some reimagined freakier graboids in South Africa. Uh, just real quick, Tremors 6, A Cold Day in Hell, was released in t- 2018. Michael Gross as Burt and Jamie Kennedy as son killed graboids in the Canadian Arctic. And Tremors 7, Shrieker Island, came out last year. And Burt Gummer and John Heater, a.k.a. Napoleon Dynamite, kill, <laughs> kill genetically modified super graboids on a tropical island. Do the um, graboids have large tongue monsters? <laughs> that's pretty much spot on. He, uh, he played like a little, well, he actually played a scientist. 
Um, but he had some of his uh, Napoleon sort of uh, um, persona in there as well. So that's uh, that's a quick rundown of, of everything that is the franchise. Let's try to answer the question at hand. It's why. Why why this movie? Why the first movie? Why keep making them? Why is Michael Gross in all of them? Uh, we'll start with <laughs> I'm still going for the first one's a classic. All the others are about the paycheck. It's got to get that yeah. Burt Gummer money. Cut to the chase, and you might just be right. Um, I do want to read the sentence. Okay, now that we've covered the basic premise of the whole franchise, let's try to dig a little Ooh. deeper and answer the hard oh. questions. Hey, all right. All right. So, all right. First up, why was the first Tremors movie made? Uh, it's probably one of the easier ones to answer. Um, as with any new content of this scale, there's often a story behind it. And the story is really generally about the creators themselves. Um, in this case, it's about three friends slash partners who all met at USC film school, uh, Brent Maddock, Stephen Wilson, and Ron Underwood. And even though they've uh, gone on to be heavily involved in some well-known feature films, they're not exactly household names. Uh, you may have heard of Ron Underwood though. He's, He's done a couple pretty big movies as uh, as a director and producer. Um, their personal arcs weren't really exactly remarkable uh, leading up to Tremors. Uh, they all fell in love uh, with filmmaking early. Uh, they all eventually uh, attended USC where they met. And I also learned this. Apparently back at that time, I guess it was the 80s, I would think, or maybe late 70s, USC was actually a bit of a joke in Hollywood. Um, today it's kind of known for being a respected content creator factory. Um, but still no Harvard. The, uh, after graduating, uh, they all worked on a bunch of low budget stuff and some edu- educational videos together while on the side, they would write scripts and, uh, for speculative feature films and stuff. And eventually through a series of fortunate interactions in some of their classes and some of the stuff they did after school, uh, and some meetings and some happen chances, one of their scripts got turned into a real and ultimately successful movie, um, 1986 short circuit. You remember that? Oh movie? Yeah. That's a classic, too. Yeah, I actually loved that um, one and two. I can't remember if there was a third, but yeah, when I was a kid, I loved Short Circuit. Um, I didn't know these guys actually had written that. Um, but so this was the, uh, the trio's first time really being sent through the Hollywood machine. And uh, let's just say it didn't leave them feeling too keen on the process. Um, even though they were all involved, it was mutually decided that it was too big of a production um, for Underwood to direct. Um, because by that time he had kind of direct, uh, gravitated towards being the directing side of things with Maddock and Wilson focusing on the writing more. And even though they had a no rewrite clause on their contract when they sold the script, uh, Wilson and Maddock were actually forced into watching their vision be heavily, uh, heavily manipulated, sanitized, and dumbed down by the oh, studio execs. Man, with with really little say in the final product. Um, so the short circuit we saw, which we we you know we liked, wasn't exactly where they were trying to go with it. I think it was, their version was a little darker, a little more. Um, sci-fi. Um, That's like the worst thing that can happen as any kind of creator. That's just yep. like, I just know that from graphic design where you, you spend so much time creating something that's well balanced and it reads and it follows, follows all of the, the rules of color design and theory. Mm-hmm. And then you turn it in and they're like, what well, light? I really think it looks <laughs> great, but it'd be better if it was all in black and white, but it also had red in it. Like what? You don't even know what you're asking. Just <laughs> yep. let, just let these guys who know the short circuit movie they want to make, just let them do it. Yep. And actually uh, to your point, and I'll get to this in a second. Uh, that's very important to the, I think to this story. Um, 
But uh, even though they went through this process and it was you know kind of painful for them, it did put them on the map and it led to a bunch of uh, or led to a quest for some more scripts. Uh, and eventually, one thing led to another. They ended up working with Steven Spielberg on a variety of scripts, including Ghost Dead, uh, Batteries Not Included, and even the the Land Before Time. Um, and with all that, eventually they built up enough respect to be given a shot to do it their way. And the shot they took was Tremors. So that's, as you were kind of saying, I think actually the most important reason why Tremors turned out the way it was and turned out to be such a long-lasting, uh, you know, B-ish style monster movie compared to others is because these guys basically had full creative control when it came to this movie. You know, the studio had a couple ideas here and there, but they really got to make their movie this time. And I think I think really that's why why we have the trimmers we do today. Yeah, so they had they had the freedom uh, to do the movie their way. They built their own team, and for two full months, uh, this large crew spent uh, pretty much all day and all night working in the desert, kind of in remote eastern California, uh, to bring us this classic. And they became a family, um, really. And they got to uh, actually do this uh, together again and again. Uh, in fact, uh, so. Brent, uh, Stephen, and Ron worked on uh, pretty heavily on uh, one, two, three, and four, and the TV series. And then uh, things got weird around the fifth one, and uh, the rest of it was a whole new crew. But for you know, for uh, I guess 10, 12, 15 years there, maybe even longer than that. If you have to look at the time span or the dates again, um, these guys were all working together on these movies more or less making them how they wanted, but we'll see a little bit about how that changed after the first one a little bit. So uh, I can actually relate a little bit to the joy of the process of filmmaking a little bit. Um, I haven't had my tremors moment just yet, but I uh, kind of like these guys. I've, I've been dabbling in filmmaking ever since I was really young. Um, I don't know. Well, filmmaking might be actually a too strong word. Uh, it's probably fair to say I've been recording stuff for a long time. Uh, like when we, were, when we were a kid, we'd make little shorts on the camcorder. Uh, college, I filled all the dumb stuff we would do and make little montages. Um, Ten years ago, I actually quit my job to travel in a van, and I tried to make it as uh, an action sports filmer kind of guy with, like, no connections or anything. I just found random people. It's like, hey, you're doing cool stuff. Can I film you? I made a couple little fun things, but, you know, obviously that didn't go anywhere. That's cool. But probably, yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was a good time. It was definitely a good time. I made some really good friends. But probably um, one of the purest and most I would say fulfilling acts of creation I was ever involved with was partici- uh, participating in the 48 hour film fest. Have you heard of that? I think you've just mentioned it briefly. That's, that's all I've heard about it, that you okay. were part of cr- a film creation there. Yeah. So it's, it's this competition that happens um, all over the States. I think it actually happens all over the world now. Uh, I don't know how it's done during the COVID times, but um, essentially what they do is, uh, they go to a city and they give you, they allow a bunch of teams to sign up for it. You put your team together ahead of time and you go at like Friday afternoon and you draw a genre, a prop and a line out of a hat Whoa. And, you have, and you have 48 oh, hours. Yeah. Yeah. You have 48 hours to make a film, you know, a short based on all those three things. And at the time I was a part of an improv group. Or no, I was not part of an improv group. I was taking improv lessons. Very different. Uh, but I, I gathered some of the people I was doing the lessons or, the, you know, the classes with and a couple of other guys I knew that were into kind of filming stuff, a guy that was really good at editing and um, camera work and things like that. And we put together a team and we got lucky and we drew comedy, which was like nice. a huge win for us because there was like if we had a drama or something, I don't know what we'd come up with. But um, I worked as essentially a writer, uh, editor, uh, producer and actor on that and 
holy crap, was that fun. Uh, that was like one of the most exhilarating like 48 hours I think I've ever had. It just, it just felt so good to be part of that process. And it felt natural. Like If I ever was able to be lucky enough to get really involved with any kind of filmmaking, I think where I would want to land is somewhere in the production, like a producer side. Um, it was just, uh, I don't know, it was, a, it was a great experience. I would love to do it again. Um, I, I recommend anybody that has any kind of interest in this kind of stuff, check it out. Check out the 48 Hour Film Fest website because they... Uh, they're pop up in cities all over the time, all over, all the time, all over the place. And so, what a cool idea! That's like you have to really, I imagine, have a group that shows mastery of that art form. I mean, I imagine that's what that entire project is about: is a, about making people work within time constraints. Yep. To basically bring out like just something pure and, I, I guess, like kind of unadulterated. You know, like. Cause if you have a lot of time, you just like keep reworking stuff until eventually it's nothing like whatever the original ver- uh, vision was, but that's just like, you just got to bang it out. And it's kind of like a test of your skill and your tenacity, I would imagine. Yeah. No, I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Um, our, uh, what was our, our movie or our short was called happy endings. And I think it was, it was actually decent. Uh, we didn't win anything, uh, but we were all pretty proud of how it came out. Um, I, I might try to see if I can dig that up. There's got to be a copy of it somewhere. Oh, you should definitely dig that up, put it on YouTube, and share it in the show notes, buddy. Yeah, we'll see if I can do that. I lost a lot of my footage from back in the day. Um, that might be part of it, but hopefully that's out there somewhere. I bet it's out there somewhere. All right, so transitioning back to trimmers here and our why, why, why questions. Uh, the second question I wanted to talk about is why would this Mr. Michael Gross spend basically his entire second half of his career and second half of his life doing these movies. Um, besides the grab boys themselves, the only one element that was consistent through all these films and the TV series was, uh, his character, Burt Gummer. Um, he is like iconically Burt Gummer also. Yes. I mean, that's, he is Burt Gummer. He is pretty much the Tremors franchise at this point. Um, I didn't even know he had a real name. I just thought that that (laughs) guy was Burt. That's like what I remember him from Tremors. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I vaguely remember him. I mean, I definitely didn't know his name, but I I remember Family Ties a little bit from the '80s. Um, that's the one with Michael J. Fox, and mm-hmm. uh, so he was he was the father, and um, he's definitely he was definitely a very unlikely pick to play the uh, devoutly libertarian prepper survivalist gun nut uh, known as Burt Gummer, and he was actually a studio suggestion. Uh, speaking of the studio, you know, sticking their hands in things. And uh, Maddox and Wilson, the writers, they weren't keen on the idea of having this well-known, um, this guy who has this well-known on-screen persona that was pretty much the opposite of Burt come on to, to play this character. But he actually apparently just blew them away in his audition. And that's how, you know, and how we have the Burt Grimm we have today. Um, question is for him, though, is why would he switch it up so drastically and initially take this role and more curiously, why did he keep, you know, coming back to this, uh, direct to video B rate train, cutting its way through the lands of obscurity for three decades, <laughs> cavitating <laughs> its way through the ground. <laughs> yes. Not unlike the mystical graboid. Uh, the answer to the first question or uh, answer to the first part is in the question. Um, gross found it exciting to switch it up after a decade as TV's number one vanilla dad. Um, to him, the role was intriguing because it was different and interesting. Uh, but he also really liked the script because it wasn't to him. And I agree. It wasn't just about monsters. Uh, it was really about the people, uh, regular relatable people working together to survive, you know, a totally messed up situation. 
Hallmark of a good monster horror action style movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it actually had some heart. It wasn't just about showing some gory monster deaths and things like that. Um, and then, you know, I get it for the first one, but why did he stick around? That uh, is a question there. Yeah. <laughs> that is a so, long time. He uh, He's always been a vocal proponent of the series. He's done a lot of media. Um, and from everything I've just seen, he just really seemed to have a lot of fun with it. Um, the way he described it is he, he described playing Burt Gummer as mining comic gold. So yeah, it is, it's a monster flick, but it's also a comedy, but it's, it's sort of a subtle, um, uh, not in your face, you know, it's not, I guess there's some slapstick kind of stuff, but it's, it's, it really is a comedy and he's, he really found a lot of joy in playing the comedic aspects of, uh, over the top Burt Gummer. Um, and, uh, I think part of it might have been that over time, you know, the franchise basically coalesced into the Gummer versus Graboids and government show. Um, I did. I found some mention of him uh, starting to tire a bit of it, a uh, bit of the Burt character, at least by the third movie in the series. Uh, but in the fourth movie, they wrote him a new character where he plays like an old relative. And that guy was actually sort of like a totally opposite character of Burt. Um, very pensive, sort of a tight wad kind of guy with no real life experience of anything monstery but over the over that uh fourth movie it's almost like a uh origin story of the burt persona the guy changes and he becomes more like burt so that gave him a little little variety and then um the fifth sixth and seventh movies it may have just been the fact that they got to film in really cool places like south africa uh, the canadian arctic and thailand um yeah when you were mentioning those those definitely seemed like they were built around the locations and yeah, I, yeah, when you have a series that goes on that long, I mean, it's like uh, Friday the Thirteenth. I would not say that I love those movies because most of them are not very good. But I'm like right. a I'm a huge fan of the concept, especially of Jason. It's like just like one of the most iconic characters ever, and it just seemed like as they went on, the only way to really sustain a franchise going on that long is you have to create some sort of gimmick for each, for each entry, you know, it's like, they weren't as, yeah, exactly. Like they weren't as much about location. I mean, they did go to quote unquote Manhattan, Mm -hmm. i.e. Toronto to film, but you know, they, as they went further on, it was about, you know, Jason goes to hell and Jason fights Freddy and all these, all these just variations of the formula because people just wanted to see, Jason Voorhees kill people. And I imagine with this also, people probably want to see Burt Gummer because he has a really good character. And then they want to see the Graboids cavitating their way through different landscapes. That's exactly right. I'm going with cavitation no matter what the, no matter what the lore says. Well, I was going to actually save this to the end. Um, but there's uh, so one of the resources um, that I used or came across during the study or the research for this um, so the production company that uh, Maddox, Wilson, and Underwood had uh, created basically for the franchise is called Stampede Entertainment. And they have a website that's pretty neat. Um, they have a huge fact page uh, for all the different Tremors movies, even the ones they didn't produce, apparently. And I noticed just yesterday that um, Stephen Wilson, there's a, there's a place on the site where you can ask a question about any of the movies. And the most recent answer was by Stephen Wilson, the writer, f- four days ago. And this oh, website's man. been up for like 12 years or something. So 
Uh, I was I was thinking maybe we could try to come up with a question to have him answer before the next episode and then report back to what he comes with. Maybe we need to try to work something in about cavitations. Yeah, why cavitation was never part of the lore. I would guess if I had to answer that question right now, it was because that's probably pretty recent research and they already have established lore. Because I know I only recently heard about them boiling sand with air. And it just seemed, whenever I saw that, I should see if I can find that video. Uh, But when I saw that, it instantly made me think of Tremors and the Dune Sandworms and how it's like a plausible real world technology and science-based way to justify them moving through the ground like that. Yeah, I, you know what? We'll we'll come up with the correct wording and the correct question, and we'll shoot it over to Wilson and see what see what he comes back with. That I, sounds I, like a great I, idea. I would not be surprised if he gives a similar answer to just what you just laid out. Speaking of, though, I don't want to do a huge tangent here, but uh, Dune, new Dune coming out this month. Uh, pretty excited about that. I think it looks pretty cool. Yeah, it looks Anyways. awesome. Yep. All right, so. Uh, with the first two why questions, we basically have the type of answer a purist might want when it comes to why content is made, which is, uh, you know, for the love of the craft and the joy that comes from the act of creation. Uh, you know, this is Hollywood we're talking about, so it's not all rainbows and kumbaya. Uh, the answer to the final question doesn't need much research or lead up, and you've already answered a couple times. Why has Universal Pictures continued <laughs> to finance and release these films for three decades? And you are right. The answer, quite simply, is money. Um you know, Universal is really more of a conglomerate of several sub-companies, uh, kind of focused on different segments. Uh, one of those happens to be the direct-to-video market, now the direct-to-digital uh, segment. Uh, and this is one of the segments in which they found a way to make money. Um, the formula is actually quite simple. Find a property that has at least a modest fan base, make more films as cheap as humanly possible, and as long as enough people keep buying them, keep making them. Uh, in fact, uh, I think every interview I saw with Michael Gross Oh, he had a line he would use. Uh, he's, I think he said, show business is 5% show and 95% business. If people keep buying, they'll keep making or something like that. Um, and, you know, not, not all, surprising at all. Yeah. Not all movies have to be blockbusters, you know, to be lucrative. Uh, like I said, that, so the trimmers budget, the initial one had $10 million budget. Uh, there were no exact numbers on the, you know, the, the follow-ups. Um, a lot of stuff suggests they were probably in the 4 to $6 million range. Um, I think Tremors 2 was supposed to have a, a much bigger budget and then like, I don't know, something fell through and they decided, you know what, we're not going to make this a feature film. I think probably when Bacon was like, nope, not doing this again. Uh, oh yeah. A little side note about Bacon. Um, for, I think until like the last five or six years, uh, he considered Tremors the low point of his career. Like he said he would have like walking nightmares about tanking his career like that. And oh man. But, so awesome though i know no apparently he's come around to it in the last you know like i said a half decade or so uh, just because so many people come up to him and tell him how much they loved him in trimmers yeah um, it's a the, it, the first one especially is the only one i've seen but it's such an awesome movie it's and you know like it, like you're saying it is a comedy and he's really funny in it and it's not like I would never yeah. watch that movie and think like, oh man, no one will ever employ this guy again. No one will ever create a six degrees game around this guy because he'll be in every <laughs> right. major movie from here to the next 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame, but I, you know, at least he's kind of come around to it. Um, I mean, I He's also it. in Friday yeah. the 13th, so he's in all kind of classic That's franchises. True. That's true. 
I don't know, Kevin. I don't know. I actually follow him on Instagram, and he mostly sings uh, acoustic guitar songs to his goats now. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's all. That's all I've seen on. Uh, Instagram. I guess he's not concerned about tanking his career these days, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, like I was saying, the uh, the the follow ups had clearly smaller budgets, uh, about half the budget, and um, uh, that's not a lot. You know, three. Four to six million dollars for a film about big ass monsters, uh, you know, is, is not a ton. And obviously, the quality uh, suffered a bit. CGI um, fests, I would imagine. Yeah. So um, the first one came out, like I said, ninety ninety, and I believe every bit of it was animatronic. Uh, it would I don't have think to they have had, been. Yeah, yeah, because they were stop right motion. Before, yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, they did. Uh, they they actually, I think, worked up a lot of stop motion. No, that's Jurassic Park. Actually, I'm confusing it with. Anyways, yeah, they mostly had puppets, I think. And then 91, I think, was when Jurassic Park came out. And then we first, they got their first, you know, real look at uh, what CGI could do. And they started putting more and more of that into the trimmers. Uh, by the by, the, uh, the more recent movies, they're all, they're all CGI. Yeah, it would um, have to be in, on a budget like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the way they got through with their budget. The other thing is um, the first movie, uh, I think they had 58 filming days out in the desert. The follow-ups uh, had like twenty-something days a piece to film, so you you know you don't have a lot of time to work with, a lot of money to work with, and you're doing. I mean, they're doing the best they can, and like I said, after I watched them again, they were actually still pretty watchable for what they were. Um, but yeah, they they clearly suffered from the the minimal budgets, but that's that was the whole point, you know. The movie studios like giving them as little as they can to get as much out of like much out of them as they can, and I. Like I said, there's no good numbers out there. I saw one. There's um the fandom website trimmers.fandom.com. It says that um, the franchise has grossed like just over five hundred million worldwide. I don't. That's the power I, of a franchise. I don't know if I believe that. That's the only place I saw any number like that. Um, but I, it still seems high to me. But I, I know they've done pretty well. Um, obviously, they have because they wouldn't keep making them for thirty years. I mean, that's the whole reason why, like what you say, you don't need a blockbuster. I'd imagine a studio love to get its hands on some sort of property that you can franchise. And then, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, those movies are definitely not about the fans. They might, they might have the touchstones that the fans want. And I'm sure people love them for a lot of things that makes tremors great, but kind of the way you're describing it, you know, like the later movies are definitely made all jokes aside, totally for the paycheck. Yeah, no. I mean, that's that's absolutely clear. Um, but you know what? In the end, I'm I'm glad they made them. I'm probably one of forty people that have seen all seven. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know how our collective forty person wallet monies have added up to five hundred million exactly. But you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm a little off. Maybe there's more it's than that Hollywood math. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Magic math. All right. So uh, to bring us home. Uh, if the Trimmers franchise shows us anything about why humans make content, uh, perhaps it does just boil down to a couple elements. Uh, the joy that comes from making something and money. So, Josh, I have a question for you. Perfect. Why do you and Brett create a new piece of content every week uh, with all that it entails? I know it's a lot of work. Is it the joy of creation or is it the money? <laughs> oh, well, it wouldn't <laughs> be the money. Um, I 
like making this show because I really like podcasts. I listen to a ton of podcasts and I, after a while I just thought, you know, I would, I think it would be cool to try to make one. And I had the idea, the content clearinghouse was like a name I came up with years and years ago. And I just thought it would be cool to have like maybe a website or something where not doing reviews necessarily, because that's not really what we do here, but doing recommendations. Like that was always the idea. Even when I was, I was like 15 years old and I just remember being obsessed with content and thinking it would be a cool idea to have a website or something where you would just push the things that you loved. And then growing up, I realized, oh, I would just do that all the time to people that I would meet whenever I come up with, you know, a, a series of books, the lost fleet or whatever, whatever I was mm -hmm. into. And I would always try to sell everybody on it. The idea of consuming that same content. And so kind of that seed idea and the fact that podcasts are available and the fact that I love podcasts, that's why I, why we started it. But now I do it because it does make me think about content in a different way. And it makes me I think a, a better content consumer because I'm always thinking analytically about everything that I'm watching. And uh, also maybe a little bit of habit at this point because now it's just become part of my routine. Whenever I see something that even is re even remotely cool, I just pull up my phone and just start outlining a little bit. And then I have probably 15 to 30 outlines that just never went anywhere on my phone. But yeah, it's uh, I always kind of had that desire. I felt like I could do it and habit. Habit would be the money in this uh, formula. Huh. So you're going to pay me in habit. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, see what I can buy with that. Uh, after no, uh, you do this show for a month, you're going to have a habit of of outlining things too. Right? No. Uh, well, I, I got to say I am super uh, happy that you guys started this and, 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 and made it what it is uh, as, a, as a big fan, obviously. Uh, it's been great to, to hear uh, – like I, I think I described it the, in the first time I was on, uh, how, how was it? it was something like the two voices in my head and my brain meets come together and make a show or a podcast or something. I mean, that's, uh, uh, every, just about everything you guys talk about has been right up my alley. So it's, it's been great to, to watch you guys go through this and, um, uh, you know, make such great content of your own. Um, so it's really cool. And I'm glad you guys let me come on, uh, to pretend to be Brett for a little bit too. Uh, it's been, a, it's been very <laughs> Thanks, interesting man. to see. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, I just realized one thing I messed up on them. I didn't, Brett always has a really nice outro sentence and I don't have one of those. So I may just have to leave it at that. Well, that's right. I mean, <laughs> I can't expect you to, poss to possibly steal everything about Brett's persona, no matter how hard you try. There's got to be some little signature he has that allows people to differentiate the two of you. However, how else will he ever steal his life back? But, uh, dude, I think for a, a second tr second time on the show, this is awesome. And this actually makes me want to go and watch Trimmers again. I don't know if I'm going to go and watch all of them unless Burt Gummer just really captures me this time around. But Trimmers is yep. a movie that I haven't thought about in a long time other than the whole cavitation thing that I seem to be hung up on. But hearing you talk <laughs> about it, it's what this show always does. It makes me want to go and consume this content, which is perfect because that's exactly why we do the show, to share the things that we love with people and convince people that even if it's something like 
trimmers and you're like, oh, aren't there, doesn't that have three failed television series associated with it? I don't want to watch that. And you're, you lay out all the reasons why you should. And that's exactly what the show's about. So I think even with the lack of an outro sentence, <laughs> that was amazing, man. That's exactly what we wanted from you. And throwing you in the deep end, I say you did great, buddy. You get to keep your contentology degree that I made for you on Photoshop. Fantastic. Well, I, <laughs> I look forward to doing it again, maybe sometime, perhaps, I don't know, next week. Yep. We're definitely going to do that. And, uh, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening to the show. Please join us next week. We're going to keep this uh, guest contentology thing going for a little while until Brett is able to slide back in here. But who knows? We might bring Nick back every once in a while because this is amazing. And uh, if you guys follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you can check out our posts there at the at uh, the Content Clearinghouse. You can email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. If you have questions, send them in. We'll read them on the air. You can also join our Discord channel. The link is in the show notes. Please share the show with your friends. Tell people about the show. We'd love to grow our audience that way. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We will be back here next week with more great content jammed directly into your cavitated ear holes. Albus Park or One Day Park. I was worried somebody might stop in today and just bust in here. Like I'm sitting in this random room. Sounds like I'm talking to myself. But hey, you guys, scored a podcast. Really, you guys need a guest host. <laughs> well, you know what's kind of interesting about it is the um, so the the people that are opening this park. Uh, their name are Heath and Alyssa, and they did a podcast called the RV Entrepreneur for about four or five years. And we were listening to that when we started converting our bus like four years ago. And that's what their podcast is. What convinced us to go full time. And then they Sweet. eventually. I think they wrapped their podcast up two weeks ago or three weeks ago or something like the final episode. And now they're opening this uh, RV park. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and so they, they have this building kind of built out, and then uh, they don't really have any grounds built out yet, but they're letting people stay just for like a couple bucks. And they have showers and water and a kitchen and stuff, So it's uh, and fiber internet, which has been huge this week. So it won't. So been, there's one difference from Brett. It won't take you eight <laughs> hours to upload yeah. your file. Yeah, it should be uh, like eight seconds. Is this uh, – are you guys just passing through, or are you – Gonna yeah, be there for yeah. a while. No, we um we talked about maybe going down to visit Josh, but th their schedules was kind of crazy right now, so they wouldn't really be around. We're gonna go to Telluride tomorrow for a few days. Um, we we really just set up shop here so we could actually use their address to mail some stuff and kind of get settled in the airstream because there was a lot of crap we didn't have, and we we're trying to still figure a lot of stuff out. And I have this new job and stuff, so it was uh we just needed some place to chill for a little while that didn't really have a What's lot. What's your on. What's your drone job? I should have asked you about that on the record. Um, yes, yeah, uh, we probably talked about it. when I so I, this is I'm coming back to a job that I had uh, last year um, when I was working for that cargo drone company. I know I, I think I probably sent you and Mikey uh, some pictures of some of the drones they were building or we were building. But it's, it's a cargo drone startup that a really good friend of mine from college was one of the founders of, and um, it got when I was working for him last, I guess twenty. 19 into 2020 uh it got killed uh, with COVID. essentially um they had a big mm -hmm. funding round and like everything was going through then it all just fell apart and the, all the guys were to kind of demoralize and they're like just shut it down um but uh my buddy and one other guy kept it going and they um uh have actually set up a deal with the saudis 
Um, these are cargo drones, nothing military or anything like that. Um, right now, they're scale scale versions, like three foot by three foot size drones, but they're eventually going to be like bus size is the or not bus uh, van size van size. I mean, still pretty big. And That's they're what's big. interesting about them? They're they're quad rotors, or actually they'll be coaxial, so they're eight rotors, but they also have four wings. So to get the efficiency, they basically be VTOLs that take off, and then all four rotors rotate forward. Um, Whoa. That's awesome. So then it flies. You're flying them? uh, So right now I'm not because I don't have one. Um, And they probably won't, I probably won't do one while I'm in the Airstream. Um, But I'm, the first time I was one of the main, I was the main pilot since we had our background in flying and also head of software. So this time I'm just coming on as head of software. They've kind of gotten the flying down now. They've Um, clearly never sat in on a flight with you. They, <laughs> they, they have not experienced first person. Um, uh, yeah, no, they haven't ridden cockpit, but uh, they you pulled uh, off some of the craziest shit I've ever seen, and also at the same time take the goggles off. Like, I can't believe we survived. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to dial it back a little bit because each of these drones were like four or five grand, and uh, yeah. that's just the scale ones. Um, Do you remember that time you went through the bleachers? like (laughs) full speed i I didn't even know what happened until we saw the video it's like you teleported through matter you hit like the perfect (laughs) keyhole like an impossible shot you could have never done it on purpose no because it was probably like exactly the same height as the drone you know like you you must have missed it by millimeters with the props yeah that was a bit of a miracle i think it was probably the next (laughs) flight though i went straight into the tree or something we were like yeah classic drone flight yeah, uh, being back out here though, man. Um, I guess I don't know if this is like tickling my memory or this is where everything looked cool to fly being out in the mountains. Um, I've certain because we went through Crested Butte and, and Cottonwood Pass on the way out here, and uh, I remember seeing a lot of spots. I was like, I flew that, or I definitely wanted to fly that. And like, man, I wish I still had an FPV. Yeah, uh, no I'll, kidding, man. My drones I, uh, have all just been relegated to wall decoration at this point. It's yeah, been we have a years for me. We have a Mavic that we still fly sometimes for cool pictures or something. Um, I really uh, was looking at that. Have you seen the, the DJI uh, Freestyle or the FPV drone they put out? Uh, uh, just like videos of it. It looked kind of like – actually, it looked like the video is pretty amazing, but it might be a little limited as far as like a racing drone actually goes. Yeah, I think maybe the speed, speed was dialed back, but it had a lot of the features that the um, – the uh like the full scale DJI's have as far as the come home and all the, the safety features and the range the range is out of control and the video quality is HD and all that kind of stuff. It looked I'd be it, so it looked afraid intriguing. to break it. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's what happens when you fly FPV. Indeed, fifty bucks to repair every time you fly. That's how that's my first year of flying. Yeah, we they uh they they've actually had some pretty bad luck with their car uh, their test fleet. In the last bit. So so there's this new city uh, being built in Saudi Arabia called Neom. And it's uh, basically they're trying to build their version of Dubai. And right now it's basically just desert and water. Or it's on the coast. And they're trying to make it this futuristic city. So the deal uh, the guys have is I think it's um, a few million dollars. They they love the, the look of our drone so much that they want it to be their official cargo drone of the city. So we're working with them to be like their pilot, you know, delivery, like, I don't know, like small whatever kind of consumer good drone to fly the city. Um, so that's pretty neat. 
So they're gonna be like flying all over the all over the place. Uh, that's the theory. Uh, you know, it remains remains to be seen, but that's where it's heading. Um, Are you gonna have to move to Saudi Arabia to do the job? No, hell no. Um, one of the founders still lives in Dubai, and they already set up a team in, in Saudi Arabia to run operations. Um, no, all the R and D and development still gonna be in Michigan, where my buddy is, and um, they they took a chance with me being as mobile and on the road as I am. Uh, the, they would ideally have, like to have somebody in house, obviously, um, but I have experience in all their. Uh, there's like eight code bases, that, not just drone stuff, but like the the operations code and um, the websites and APIs and stuff. Um, I did all of that, so even though I'm not always available 100% like they might want, I, you know, uh, I, I do know all the code bases already, so that's why they pulled that's me back cool. in. Yeah, so, hey, it'll congrats. be neat. That sounds like a dream job. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Appreciate that. It's going to be. I hope. I hope it. I get some shares this time too. So hopefully it actually pans out. We'll see. That's dope. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. Thanks. All right, you ready to do this thing? Let me take a good old swig of water. All right. I'm also going to take a swig of Canadian crack maple syrup. All right. Now I realized right before we started. I didn't eat like shit today that gives me energy. I was kind of drained by the end, by the time we were getting started. So I've been taking hits of uh, maple syrup because that's all I could find with sugar in it. Just to keep my brain active and <laughs> man, man is it tasty. Nice. Yeah, you got to stay fresh for the CCH performance. That's right. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of the whole world. In front of 49 people. All right, let's do this. 